Welcome to the Neither Fee Nor Fair podcast about election security and democracy in the 21st century. This is the What is Happening in Uganda episode. I'm James Long, host of this podcast and associate professor of political science and co-founder of the Political Economy Forum at the University of Washington. In January of this year, a president was sworn into office after an election conducted during a pandemic, allegations of election fraud, intimidation of the political opposition, and violent attempts to undermine democracy in the streets of the nation's capital. No, I'm not referring to the US, but to the African country of Uganda. Once referred to as the Pearl of Africa by Winston Churchill, after receiving independence from the British in 1962, Uganda quickly set off on a course of contentious politics, including the dictatorship of Idi Amin in the 1970s and a civil war in the 1980s. Upon winning the war, the insurgent leader Yoweri Museveni and his National Resistance Movement, or NRM, managed to take control of the government and chart a course of state building and nation building beginning in 1986. Despite Uganda's tumultuous history, Museveni actually succeeded in helping to build institutions, even facing the scourge of the HIV epidemic in the 1990s and a war against the Lord's Resistance Army or the LRA in the north of the country in the 2000s. In 2006, Uganda held its first multi-party elections, which Museveni won. But the era of good feelings that meant Museveni's rise to power and Uganda's transition to democracy in the last few decades has in recent years faded away as he and his NRM cronies have become increasingly authoritarian. He's won every election since 2006 and Museveni changed the constitution to remove term limits, allowing himself the ability to run this January when he won the presidency once again. This means that Museveni has been president of Uganda for the last 35 years. Ahead of this year's election, the government arrested and harassed opposition leaders and supporters, cracked down on civil society, and shut down social media. And as Americans watched the horrors of the Capitol riot unfold in January, Ugandans similarly witnessed their democratic institutions being threatened first by voting in, pa in a pandemic, and second, because of the hijacking of a free and fair election by an increasingly out of touch and aging autocrat in the form of Museveni. To discuss what is happening in Uganda and how to make sense of it all, I'm joined today by a special guest and old friend, Professor Frederick Aluba Mutebe. Fred is a Ugandan political scientist and anthropologist having done his undergraduate degree at Makerere University in Uganda and his PhD at the London School of Economics and Political Science. Since then, Fred has taught and researched at Makerere, the University of Witwatersrand in South Africa and the London School of Economics. He is currently an associate of the Politics and Governance Research Group at the Overseas Development Institute, Professor Extraordinarius at the University of South Africa, and Honorary Senior Research Fellow at the University of Manchester. He was formerly a Senior Research Fellow and one time Acting Executive Director at the Institute of Social Research at Makerere University, which is how I know Fred. During graduate school, I did a Fulbright in Uganda and Fred graciously hosted me at Makerere. Fred's work has focused on contemporary international, regional, and local debates on governance and political reform in Africa, including post-war reconstruction, state building, and democracy assistance. He has published on politics and development in countless book chapters and leading journals. Fred also consults widely and writes for popular media in Africa on current affairs. And I have to say, he's a lot of fun to follow on Twitter. So I'm pleased to have Frederick Aluba Mutebe join me from Kigali, Rwanda. Hello, Prof, how are you? Very well, thank you. How are you, James? Good, thanks a lot for joining me. Um, so Fred, where to start? Um, our friends, and I should say former colonial masters in Great Britain, once called Uganda the Pearl of Africa. And when I had the good pleasure of living and researching during graduate school, uh, first in 2008 and nine, and then again in 2011 in Uganda, I was cautiously optimistic 
that Uganda would become a leading democratic light, an example for other countries in the region to follow. But in the past few years, it would seem as though democracy is collapsing. Fred, was I being naive about Uganda? Um, no, I wouldn't say you were being naive. Um, I think that for anyone who would have been new to the country at the time would have had probably the same sentiments as you had. But I think that those of us who have been observing President Museveni and the national resistance movement since they came to power, uh, by that time, some of us had begun to wonder if President Museveni and the NRM were going to take Uganda in the direction that they had promised to take it. Um, I will tell you that for me, um, I started having misgivings about him and his group way back uh, during the very first campaign, presidential campaign he participated in after the war. That was in 1995-96. I had been a fairly alert young boy <clears throat> in the 1980s when President Museveni chose to go to war following what he and others claimed was a rigged election in 1980. And I had witnessed a lot of uh, misconduct on the part of the government then, which had won the elections that he disputed. Uh, now, when he took part in the very first presidential campaigns after he came to power, this is 95, 96, I saw significant continuities between that particular campaign and the campaign that President Museveni actually used as an, as an excuse or justification for going to the bush. Opposition uh, supporters and leaders were being harassed. They were not being allowed to uh, hold meetings. They were not being given the space to talk to whoever they wanted to talk to. There was a great deal of obstruction and violence. And I thought that this was very reminiscent of what I had seen in, the, in 1980. So for me, it is from that point that I began to wonder about him. So by the time you came to Uganda, I was no longer convinced that he would certainly take Uganda into the direction of further democratization and uh, deepening of democracy. I began to wonder about him and I can tell you that I'm not at all surprised by what I have seen since 1996. So Fred, let's go back to the beginning because I think what's really interesting about Museveni is you know, his role as this like guerrilla insurgent leader turned president. What led to the civil war originally and why you know, Uganda was sort of cycles of instability for so long and suddenly the NRM comes, they win the war and then there's sort of stability after that. But who is Museveni? Who was he originally and why was he an insurgent leader? Um, Museveni has been in politics uh, since his youth, since his secondary school days. So he was a political activist, a youth political activist. Sometimes some people may refer to him as an agitator from his secondary school days. After he left university, the University of Dar es Salaam, he came back to Uganda, he went and worked for the then uh, government of Milton Obote, which was subsequently overthrown in a military coup in 1971 by Idi Amin. Now, following the overthrow of Obote's first government, uh, a lot of Ugandans then went into exile. They went to Tanzania, and Museveni was one of those that left the country. Now, when they went uh, to Tanzania, there were thousands of Ugandans who did that. They sought refuge in Tanzania because President or former President Obote was friends with uh, the late Julius Nyerere. So Nyerere invited him to Tanzania 
and a lot of the anti-Amin uh, factions, uh, political factions, then all followed Obote to Tanzania, and that's where President Museveni, as a young man, then went. Now, during Amin's eight years in power, these groups that went to Tanzania began or engaged in various activities uh, designed to topple Idi Amin and remove him from power. And President Museveni was one of those. And he founded a group called the Front for National Salva Salvation, or FRONASA, which he founded with a, a group of young people uh, with whom he had been at the University of Dar es Salaam. Now, FRONASA joined other groups and formed uh, a coalition of Ugandan exiles, which alongside the Tanzanian military then uh, waged war on the Idi Amin government and toppled Idi Amin. Now this is uh, 1979. So when they seized power, these former exiles then failed to work together. So they, the whole uh, group of exiles then fell apart. They fought over power, they toppled uh, whoever came to power and I mean, they were not really, they didn't have a collective vision for where they wanted to take Uganda. Now, uh, Milton Obote who had been toppled by Idi Amin then took advantage of this and uh, he and his group pushed for multi-party elections, which is what we had in 1980. Now, President Museveni uh, founded a political party then called the Uganda Patriotic Movement. Again, he and his uh, associates. Now, UPM took part in the uh, campaigns of 1980. They did not perform very well because they were still very young people and hardly anyone knew them enough for them to have performed well. So a lot of them actually didn't make it to parliament. Um, Seven, who was uh, <clears throat> the leader of this group, stood for parliament in his home area and he lost. He even lost his deposit. Surprisingly, he lost to his brother-in-law, Sam Kutesa, who happens to be the father of his <laughs> son's wife. Um, and when these elections took place in December 1980, uh, President Museveni and his associates uh, decided that uh, this election had been rigged, it hadn't been free and fair, and rightly so, because Milton Obote used the military, he used gerrymandering, there was a great deal of violence, opponents were not allowed to campaign, many were arrested and thrown into jail and prevented from campaigning. So President Museveni and his associates had some grounds for arguing that this election had been rigged. And so they decided that it, rather than sit down and endure uh, misrule under Obote, they would go to the bush and fight and topple him and then introduce a democratic government in Uganda uh, so that Ugandans would no longer have to live under dictatorship. So that's in some, that's where Museven came from. So one thing that I think is really interesting is um, a lot of people have made the argument that once they took over in the mid 1980s, you know, and then the 80s and 90s, and even maybe early 2000s, um, one of the reasons Museveni was popular was simply by exerting authority and bringing stability to the country. I'm wondering whether or not you think that's true. And also, he, he built what is famously referred to as the, the no party system, that there was, quote unquote, democracy in his eyes, but that there weren't supposed to be parties or factions competing. Can you kind of describe what that meant? Yeah, um, if we start with the no party system, when President Museven came to power with the NRM, they decided to suspend uh, the activities of political parties. Parties were not banned, but they were 
prohibited from engaging in the usual activities that political parties engage in. And they set up what they called a no-party political system into which they invited their potential adversaries from the parties they had found into in existence, some of whom joined the government. The parties were allowed to maintain their offices, their headquarters in Kampala, but they were not allowed to have offices outside the city. They were not allowed to recruit new members. They were not allowed to change their leaderships. They were literally frozen in time. Now, uh, he created this inclusive system where those who belonged to parties that would otherwise have opposed the NRM or contested for power with it uh, could join if they chose to. Some joined, others didn't. Now, that no, uh, no party system lasted a whole 20 years. And one of the uh, achievements of that was that uh, for the first time, it took uh, what I would call adversarial contestation for power out of the equation. So that people who are contesting for power in Uganda could only contest for power as individuals. We could only vote for people who, whom we evaluated to be good, capable, public spirited people, not because they belonged to this group or to that group. Now that had the effect of uh, maintaining stability and security in the country for those two decades. And I can tell you that uh, having lived in Uganda under previous governments, uh, I know for sure that President Museveni uh, pacified the country, introduced stability, and for the first time, we Ugandans could go about our business without uh, fearing uh, harassment from the armed forces or the police. Uh, we could choose our own leaders. And so this became uh, arguably the greatest asset for President Museveni. And from that time onwards, even until today, people like my mother still vote for him for no other reason other than the fact that he brought stability to the country and people can go about their business peacefully without worrying too much about insecurity. Yeah, and I mean, be, you know, countries that have had stability for a long time, I think, forget how unstable things can be at founding moments. I mean, the United States was very unstable at its founding moments, and it took a lot of um, I don't want to say, you know, it took a lot of creativity in terms of how to both try to construct democratic institutions at the same time as ensure stability and security and keeping things together. And I remember even, even as recently as maybe 10 years ago, Museveni also being very popular for, for uh, sort of driving out the Lord's Resistance Army and Joseph Kony in the North as well. And that being a very important consideration for a lot of Ugandans. Yeah, certainly peace and stability have been the greatest asset for President Museveni. Uh, he, hasn't, um, he hasn't been a very successful president in many other areas. And under him, Uganda's economy has grown very fast. Uh, there have been a, a lot of improvements in people's standards of living and so on and so forth. But there are areas where he has really not done very well. But the one reason that uh, has made people who vote for him and who continue to do so, to vote for him has been stability and peace. Because after almost 30 years of instability and insecurity and political turmoil in the country, people were really exhausted and fed up. And they wanted for once to live in a country where there was peace. So peace has been the greatest asset for President Museveni. And to this day, a lot of people vote for him on, or for that single reason. 
Now in the north, as you said, yeah, he was able to combat and defeat the Lord, uh, Lord's uh, resistant army. But of course that happened amidst a great deal of atrocities in the north. And for many years after that war ended, or even during the duration of that war, President Museven was never elected in that part of the country. The opposition used to sweep the elections there. But this particular recent election reaped dividends for him because for the first time, and I was in the North a few times before the elections, for the first time people in the North voted for him on the basis of his having ended the war and brought back stability and also put some money in the North uh, in terms of infrastructure, electricity, agriculture and other services. So yeah, again, peace, uh, the peace dividend was uh, a very important uh, factor in the North voting for him this time around. So Fred, walk us through the sort of how the democratic transition took place in 2005, 2006, when Uganda moves from this no party system to allow for multi-partyism and what Museveni's thinking was in allowing that to happen. Um, President Museveni, to this day remains unconvinced about the values of multi-party democracy in uh, developing countries or poor countries or backward countries as one may choose to characterize Uganda. So he only accepted to restore multi-party democracy because he came under really quite serious pressure, both from within and from without. Now from within, this pressure came from political parties uh, whose activities had been suspended 20 years before and those that had come up uh, as a result of disenchantment with President Museveni's rule. But it also civil society organizations which were agitating for a return to multi-party democracy because the, the government was degenerating quite seriously into a dictatorship and it was also becoming rather unaccountable. And a lot of Ugandans believed that if uh, the country reverted to multi-party politics, the government would become more accountable and possibly more able to deliver services and things of that sort. But he also then came under external pressure from donors uh, who figured that actually the government was going off the rails and the only way to bring it back was to introduce a degree of competition in our politics. Now, because of this, President Museveni chose to uh, agreed to restore multi-party politics. We had a referendum. We had a lot of discussion and argument uh, within the country. And then in 2005, he agreed that the country would go back to multi-partyism, but there was a proviso. He said quite explicitly that the only reason he had allowed it was because he had come under intolerable pressure from external uh, sources. But he really did say quite clearly that he's, he was still not a believer in multi-party politics and he thought that it would be destabilizing. Uh, that's how we returned to multi-party politics. Uh, he changed his so-called movement, the NRM, into a political party and then other parties were freed to compete supposedly on equal footing with the NRM. But of course that hasn't happened. I mean, the competition on equal footing hasn't happened subsequent to 2005, he has done everything in his power to frustrate uh, political parties. He has put in place laws that make it impossible for them to fundraise. He has put in place laws that do not allow them to do many things. There are laws that don't allow them to hold public events unless 
they have been allowed by the police. The police never allows them to do so. They disrupt their meetings all the time. So we are in a multi-party system, but a multi-party system which is only multi-party in theory, but in practice, there are so many obstacles thrown in the way of political parties that one couldn't really say that Uganda is a functioning multi-party democracy. Fred, you have a recent article published in the Journal of Eastern African Studies um, titled The Master of Institutional Multiplicity, The Shifting Politics of Regime Survival, State Building and Democratization in Museveni's Uganda. And we'll link to that on our show page. Um, in, in that article, you kind of track this last, you know, basically between the early 2000s up until 2016, the, the pace of democratization. And, and you and your co-author talk about the difference between Museveni using hard power and soft power to kind of manipulate institutions um, economic as well as political institutions. Can you describe for me the difference between those two and how that applies to his strategies for maintaining his, um, I'm, you know, he's been in office now for, for more than three decades. How does he do well, that? Um, well, his use of hard power uh, in many ways refers to things such as obstructing political parties from functioning and using the security agencies, the army, the police to do that for him. It includes arresting his opponents and incarcerating them and freeing them when he chooses to. Uh, it includes him not allowing civic groups or even members of the public to hold uh, demonstrations should they choose to. So he uses aggressive tactics to prevent any possibility of political parties or his opponents to compete on equal terms with his group or even to have any chance of dislodging him from power. So that's what we call the hard power bit. Now the soft bit is that President Museveni is very, he's very clever in that uh, besides using the hard power, he also uses a lot of uh, different approaches, which is listening to people's grievances and trying to address them. He goes around the country. He's almost constantly on the move up and down the country, listening to people in the villages, uh, responding to their demands. If they ask for roads to be tarmacked, he will do that. He will deliver piped water. He will deliver on electricity. He will hand out envelopes of cash to people. He will recruit uh, uh, local elites who may otherwise be opposed to him and give them government jobs. And in that way, recruit their communities to his uh, side. Um, he engages in a lot of that. He, 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 he uses this iron fist on the one hand and then he uses a soft approach on the other. And through a careful balancing of those two, he has been able to really stay on top of Uganda's politics uh, for all these years. And I can tell you looking around, I don't think that we have seen in a very long time a politician who is so adept at manipulating these two approaches to, with such success as Museveni. Fred, what you're saying is ultimately, I think, you know, very controversial um, in the sense that I, you know, I think when most people, you know, let's just take Americans, for instance, when they think of, you know, horrible dictators or autocrats, they only think of hard power, repression, coercion. They never sort of consider that a lot of a lot of people stay in power because they're good at retail politics. They're good at actual distribution. They actually do the hard job of governing in a lot of ways. Now they may not do it equally. They may favor some people and not others. They may not do it, you know, across every dimension. Um, but 
quote unquote authoritarians or people that aren't perfect small D Democrats. It's not just about sitting in state house and and uh, giving orders to the military and police. It's also about going out there and being among the people and trying to address some of their issues. Yeah, certainly. And here I would say that President Museveni has been a very good student of history in that he, uh, his two predecessors, the best known, uh, Idi Amin and Milton, and Milton Obote, were not as adept as he is at balancing hard power and soft power. Idi Amin was much more of a hard power, hard power person. He exiled his opponents. And as I told you, when he took over power from Obote, he went about governing the country in such a way that a lot of military and civilian elites ran away to Tanzania. Now, by these guys going to Tanzania, they were then able to find the space in which they could organize a return to Uganda through military means and, and depose him. Now, Museveni has been very clever in that he, he never exiles his opponents, but if he treats them in such a way that they run into exile, then he will really go out of his way to sweet talk them into coming back and resettling them back in the country and giving them jobs and making their lives easy. He does not leave his opponents to live outside the country. He will do everything possible to bring, bring them back. He has not alienated any communities to the, to the extent that they would ally with anyone who wants to fight his government and topple it. He will alienate a community and then he will go out of his way to really court them using money, jobs, appointments of different kinds. So he's a very clever, smart student of history, but also he's a very good political tactician as far as I'm concerned. So Fred, let's get to 2021 um, and the sort of new political opposition to Museveni in the form of this sort of young charismatic, I think he's in his late thirties, um, pop singer, Bobby Wine, uh, Bobby, very popular on social media and Twitter. But I think really for the first time, if you, you know, Museveni's always won elections pretty, you know, hands down, the opposition has been more or less defunct. But 2021, there was this new opposition against him and this new movement, particularly of young people. Can you kind of walk us through who Bobby Wine is, what his message was to Ugandan voters, and then what Museveni's response to Bobby Wine was? Uh, as you said, Bobby Wayne is a musician. He's 38 years old. He's from a fairly disadvantaged background. And as he refers to himself as, uh, as ghetto president, I think that would tell you about his origins. He comes from a suburb of Kampala called Kamwacha, which has traditionally been a big informal settlement. He grew up there. He was born there. He grew up there. Uh, he struggled to go to school. He went to so many schools, uh, he would change schools constantly. And that, that's because his parents were unable to pay school fees in almost every school he went to. So each time they excluded him on the basis of non-payment of school fees, he would change and go to another school. And when the fees came due, he would change and go to another. <laughs> <laughs> so he grew up that way. He went to university, studied music, and got a diploma in uh, music, dance, and drama. And then after university, he started a musical career, which has been uh, very successful by Ugandan standards. He has become a very successful uh, musician. He has managed to pull himself up by his own bootstraps and become fairly wealthy again by Ugandan standards. Now, his music has always been the music of somebody with a social conscious. Now, those who 
no people like Bob Marley would, would uh, kind of relate to what I'm going to say. That Bobby Wine has always been singing songs that talk about social issues, that talk about oppression, that talk about uh, deprivation, that talk about the need to lift the disadvantaged out of their poverty and so on and so forth. Now, it was, I think, as a result of his uh, growing awareness of uh, the ways in which, even as Uganda has become more prosperous, a lot of people were falling back into poverty, that he became quite intensely uh, socially conscious, started singing much more of these, uh, this socially conscious music. And then I think uh, when President Museven appointed uh, a lady called Jennifer Msisi to be executive director of Kampala's Capital City Authority, and this lady then embarked on modernizing Kampala in ways that really seriously disadvantaged marginalized groups. Uh, this is when Bobby Wine, I think, really becomes radicalized and he becomes, he begins to gain interest in taking part in politics. And it's at this moment that he chooses then to go and contest for a parliamentary seat, which he won resoundingly, uh, much to everybody's surprise. Uh, surprise because we didn't know him as a politician, we knew him as a musician. Certainly not many people had been paying attention to his music outside of certain categories of people. So he kind of stormed the national political scene in ways that uh, really were attention catching. Now, once he becomes a member of parliament, he intensifies his preoccupation with the marginalized and the poor and the need to lift them out of their circumstances. Uh, he then founds this uh, movement called People Power. People Power then becomes very um, vocal in condemning the government and criticizing it and making demands and uh, I think that President Museven then notices that this group had the potential to become, to give the ruling party a hard time and possibly to take some of its support away from it. So his response to it was fairly aggressive. But in the beginning, he started by trying to undermine them by going way uh, into the ghetto, giving money to youth groups, giving money to the poor and disadvantaged. But the more he did this, the more Bobby Wine's group continued to grow. Now we have a very large uh, young population, 78% of Uganda's population is under the age of 30. Now a lot of people, a lot of these guys uh, are without jobs, they are without opportunities because uh, the Ugandan economy does not create enough jobs. Now to give you one statistic that might illustrate the situation, 40,000 students leave university every year. And apparently at most about 20,000 jobs are created. So that leaves a surplus of 20,000 young people looking for work. Who, who have of, university degrees. I mean, this isn't yes. just, yeah, okay. Yeah, and a lot of these have become very disillusioned. Uh, they are very unhappy. And so they found a lot of uh, interest in Bobby Wine and his message. And so a lot of them gravitated towards Bobby Wine's uh, group. Now, at some point, Bobby Wine then declares his intention to stand for president. And at this point, I think President himself then realizes that actually he has uh, quite a threat on his hands. Now, when he did declare his intention to stand for president, much to the surprise of many, 
he didn't have a political party, he had a political movement. And so the government set about trying to find legal ways of preventing him from standing. One of which was that since he didn't lead a political party, there was no provision in the Ugandan, in Uganda's laws that somebody leading a political movement can be sponsored by that movement to stand for president. Now he then went about uh, very smartly um, co-opting some people who had a political party that was virtually non-active. And then People Power became this uh, national unity platform. Now, because of the really positive reaction uh, that came from all these young people across the country who were disillusioned with the government for one reason or another, uh, President Museven then embarked on trying to disable uh, the national unity platform, both using the law, but also using the security agencies and other means. But the more he did that, the more Bobby Wayne seemed to become popular. Now, um, and I think that in many ways, Bobby Wayne's group's capacity to bring to parliament uh, more than 50 MPs, this is the first time under President Museven that a political uh, opposition group uh, wins more than 50 seats in parliament. That had to do a lot with how people reacted to the way he was being harassed and mistreated by the government. So in many ways, the vote for Bobby Wine was both uh, a, a protest vote against President Museveni, but also um, uh, an expression of displeasure at how he had been treating Bobby Wine, but also I think an expression of the desire, open expression of the desire to see change and possibly a message to President Museven that it's probably about time he left. Mm -hmm. Well, it really seems that Bobby Wine in particular <clears throat> has learned to work social media in his favor, particularly Twitter to mobilize supporters and get his message out. Um, that reminds me of a person who lost an election in my country uh, using Twitter to get their message out. But honestly, Fred, the truth is African political leaders have really been at the forefront of using social media to mobilize voters for a long time, particularly the sort of young Turk political movements in countries that are trying to take on these aging dinosaurs. Um, what, what do you think accounts for the, popu the popularity of um, discussing and being engaged in political life on social media in Africa? or in Uganda specifically? Um, I wouldn't know what the explanation for the rest of Africa is, but in Uganda, um, I think that uh, the enthusiasm with which young people took to Bobby Wine uh, explains why Bobby Wine was then very successful in mobilizing support on social media. As you would know, it's young people who are normally active on social media. A lot of uh, IT survey people tend to be people in their 20s and 30s. So these young people who were joining Bobby Wayne's group were then the ones that took it upon themselves to take their message to social media. And this is where they actually played President Museven very successfully in that the more he used the security forces to disrupt their meetings and prevent them from holding rallies, the more they then used uh, social media to spread their message. And even those who had not even been uh, recruited by NUP to, to spread this message, people are doing this voluntarily. Bobby Wayne has a lot of support among diaspora Ugandans. I understand that a lot of uh, the media, the social media stuff was actually being done by young Ugandans in the United States and in Europe and elsewhere in North America. 
So he really did make very, very uh, good use of social media. And uh, President Museveni's political party, as you would know it, the National Resistance Movement is something of, uh, of, of a very sluggish elephant. Um, President Museveni is the single most active campaigner for this political group. It's not very organized. So uh, Bobby Wayne kind of wrong-footed them. They were really unable to match his, uh, his publicity on uh, social media. They tried, but they just couldn't succeed because for Bobby Wayne, this was happening both internally inside the country. And when the government was shutting down certain channels inside the country, it would then happen from outside the country. And as uh, you may be aware that they had this uh, online TV uh, station called Ghetto TV, which was broadcasting images of harassment and uh, maim uh, the, the, the maiming and shooting of Bobby Wayne's people. And then they tried to shut it down and they failed. And eventually what happened is they shot the cameraman who was moving around with Bobby Wayne and recording these image, images. Fortunately for him, he survived, but he really survived very narrowly. Uh, he was shot, uh, God knows by whom, but he was shot in the head. Mm -hmm. And I think that that might have been deliberately designed to take Ghetto TV off the air, but still they didn't succeed in taking it off. So can you walk us through then <clears throat> the lead up to election day and election day in January in terms of, you know, first voting during a pandemic um, and, and what that meant, but also kind of the, the rising tension between Bobby Wine, the opposition and Museveni NRM government um, and, and how tense things were going into election day? Well, um, I think first of all, President Museveni had made it very clear way before the campaigns began that he did not think that if uh, the COVID pandemic intensified that it would make sense for Uganda to hold elections. He actually said somebody would be mad to entertain the idea of uh, presidential campaigns and elections in the midst of a pandemic. But then I think an idea struck him that if we had these campaigns and elections during the pandemic, he could use them to frustrate or block the opposition simply by insisting on the enforcement of uh, standard operating procedures, uh, anti-COVID standard operating procedures. And when they said we were going to have scientific elections, meaning that uh, campaigns uh, or scientific campaigns, meaning that they would only happen on radio and TV and electronic media, I think that he believed that his party, given that it's fused with the state and the government would have an advantage. He could campaign on TV, he could campaign on radio, and I'm sure you know that in Uganda, opposition groups uh, not do not have an easy time of getting airtime beat on radio or TV. So I think that President Museven and his party expected to have great advantage over the opposition. So then they decided that we should go uh, we should go ahead and have the campaigns. They decreed that these campaigns should be scientific. Uh, there would be no mass rallies. Uh, but then what happened is uh, uh, they were not able to impose that. And uh, even as uh, opposition candidates went out of, went around the country trying to talk to small groups of people, large numbers of people turn up. And the, both the police and the armed forces were really not able to control this. So a lot of the violence you saw happening was, I think, rare good action from the government and the NRM to try 
and stop the opposition from reaching uh, the electorate, but I think it was too late. And uh, they, so the opposition very cleverly combined holding these rallies, but also using social media. Because again, I think that President M7 was really focused on radio and TV, and he forgot that his government really did not have much control over social media, and that those who knew how to use it could use it to maximum effect, uh, a maximum effect against them. Now, in the run-up to the uh, elections, uh, President Seven having figured out that you know uh, the opposition had become very adept at using social media. They decided that the only way to prevent them from continuing to use it was to shut down the internet. So they shut down the internet, but I think that there were also other intentions behind that, in that uh, the opposition had come up with uh, very clever apps, which they were going to use to tally their own votes. And I think that this frightened the government, as you know, I don't think there is a single uh, election in which President Museven has participated in Uganda that has been free and fair. So even this one wasn't going to be free and fair. They have tricks that they play on opposition parties. They have ways of fixing numbers. So the idea that the opposition would have these apps they could use to tally their own votes, of course, had to frighten the government. So they shut down the internet. And that meant that there was a total blackout. We couldn't communicate. At some point, uh, we couldn't send emails and even sometimes phone calls, you couldn't call anyone because the lines were so jammed that there was very little communication. So that was used to the advantage of the government and to the disadvantage of the opposition. So what, what actually happened on election day and who, <clears throat> who won the election sort of officially and, and what do you think the, the, the likely legitimate outcome should have been? Um, officially, President Museven won, and he was declared by the Electoral Commission. Uh, my own hunch would be that uh, even an, if, if in, real, in reality, I think that chances are he won. I'm not sure that he won by the 58% that was given to him, but I would reckon that he won. He had every advantage uh, of incumbency. Uh, but we have been told by people who have been running his elections before that they have these elaborate ways of rigging. They set up their they set up their own tele centers, they disable communications, and they have ways of uh, channeling their own vote tallies uh, to the electoral commission. So I don't know how true this is, but we've had people fairly credible people who have served in his government, like uh, Major General uh, David Sejusa, who gave quite clear testimony of how the rigging happened and how the army was involved. So my own thinking would be that President Museven won, but probably not with the percentage that he was given. I would also argue that possibly Bobby Wine performed far better than he performed officially. And we have seen circumstantial evidence of ballot staffing. We have seen circumstantial evidence of uh, critiquing uh, of ballots. We have heard reports of Bobby Wayne's polling agents being arrested. We've heard uh, people being disappeared, people being abducted. So there is a combination of methods that President M7 uses always to win elections or to win with higher tallies than he should actually win with. And those were applied even this time round. So he has what I call a winning template and he has been using this for every election he has participated in, and this one was no exception. 
Brett, that gets to a question that we had from a, a podcast listener. And this this person asking the question is actually somebody that knows both of us. I'm not going to name them because they're a civil society activist in Uganda. But knowing that you were going to be on the podcast, they sent me this question. They said, uh, Fred will be good on the podcast. He has in the past been annoyed by the accusations that Buganda wallow in a sense of victimhood. But he does see the uh, does he see the growing data around abductions as indication of an anti-Buganda project? So first of all, who are the Buganda, Fred? And what do you make of this this rising um, evidence being reported in the media of so many disappearances before and after this election? Um, Uganda is uh, a region in central Uganda. It's the largest region in the country. Uh, the people who are originally from this region are called Baganda, and they are the single largest uh, ethnic group in the country. Uh, the Baganda have a monarchy, a fairly powerful monarchy. It doesn't have any political power as we speak, but it has a lot of social and cultural power, and it commands a lot of uh, 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 loyalty from the Baganda. Um, and for that reason, Buganda is a politically very powerful region. And traditionally, uh, when Buganda has turned against a sitting government, life for that government becomes very difficult in that it becomes increasingly difficult to run the country. Um, Buganda has been from Seveni, uh, right from his days uh, in the, in, during the civil war. Uh, the people of Buganda supported him overwhelmingly because he was fighting uh, Milton Obote whom the Baganda hated intensely because he had overthrown and exiled their king way back in the 60s. So um, until recently, Uganda has been pretty much a captive electorate from seven. They have been consistently voting for him, even when there have been Baganda candidates running against President Museveni. Now this time around, uh, Bobby Wayne happens to be a Muganda and Buganda, for the first time since President Museveni came to power, voted en bloc against President Museveni and for Bobby Wine. And if one were to color code the map of Uganda, they would see that uh, the whole of the Uganda region is painted red because they voted for Bobby Wine. They voted pretty much uh, out of office everybody who belongs to the ruling uh, party. Uh, many senior ministers went, including the vice president. A lot of MPs were voted out and replaced by members of Bobby Wine's party. Now, uh, why did this happen? In my opinion, this happened because President Museven made a mistake. The mistake he made was to harass Bobby Wine, to molest and injure and abduct and imprison and shoot at a lot of Bobby Wine supporters, the majority of whom are from this region. Now, uh, one might argue that these were young people who were supporting President Museveni, whereas their parents have, sorry, supporting Bobby Wayne, whereas their parents have tended to support President Museveni. But I think that would be to forget that these are children of the same people who support Museveni and who were unhappy seeing their children being abducted and incarcerated and shot at and maimed and, and uh, mistreated in the way that they were mistreated. So I think that the Baganda reacted or the people of Uganda reacted to the way, the very shabby way in which President Museveni treated Bobby Wine and his campaign campaigners and his supporters. 
and voted in a protest vote against President Museveni as an expression of displeasure. Now, again, President Museveni has reacted by doing what I think is something totally unwise by intensifying the abductions and the incarcerations and illegal detentions of, again, the same people. I don't think that this is going to help him uh, gain or regain the support of the people of Uganda. It can only intensify their displeasure and dislike for him and disillusionment. And I think that next time round, we are bound to see the same thing happen again. Now, is this going to be a permanent divorce? Well, some people now think that this is now a permanent divorce between President Museveni and Uganda. My own argument would be that President Museveni is going to try and apply his soft power methods on Uganda between now and the next elections. Is he going to succeed? I really don't know, but I have my doubts. I think that uh, the way he has treated these young people, the abductions that are still ongoing, the hundreds of young people who are still missing, whose whereabouts are not known, some of whom are reported have been killed. This is not going to play very well uh, in favor of President Museveni. And I think that uh, this might be the beginning of President Museveni's really quite serious fallout with Uganda, which might as well spread to other regions. Who knows? We will see what happens over the next five years. Yeah, I was going to ask you where you think things are headed. Is it first of all, is it true that Museveni has said that he will contest again in 2026 and 2031? Um, do you think he'll be successful? And also, what is next for Bobby Wine and um, his movement? I haven't heard President Museveni say that he's going to contest again, but he never says he will contest until it's about time to start uh, organizing the campaigns. Now. Um, because he has been campaigning repeatedly, a lot of Ugandans think that as long as he still has some energy left in him to contest, he would probably contest again in 2026. Uh, will he have the energy? Will he, be still, will he still be healthy to contest? I don't know, but I wouldn't be surprised that if he can contest, he will contest again. That would not surprise me again. Would he contest again in 2030-31? Again, it will depend on, on his state of health, on, his, on the level of the physical energy he might have. Um, is he going to win? As long as he still has the advantages that have enabled him to win until today, as long as he still has the army on his side, as long as he can mobilize the army, the police and the security agencies and a lot of state entities to um, work on his behalf, Yes, he will win. I understand that he mobilized 24,000 soldiers this time around to counter the opposition across the country. As long as he can still do things of that kind, he could still win. Um, but if he doesn't run again, then I think that that would present a very different situation for the ruling party, because without Museveni, we are not sure that they are going to marshal the same kind of advantages that he has been able to marshal uh, to his own advantage. Now, what's going to happen to Bobby Wine and his group? It will depend on how they manage themselves and the situation from now going forward. I reckon President Museveni is going to throw at them everything he can throw at them in order to destroy them. And he has vowed publicly that he's going to finish them, quote unquote. And I don't doubt that he's going to do that and that he will spare no effort to destroy them. 
um, how they handle that, how they're able to resist whatever is going to throw at them, how they're able to mobilize more support, how they're able to mobilize support outside of the Uganda region and galvanize other regions to support him, uh, how they're able to raise resources to uh, remain active and not become dormant as opposition parties do after elections. I think that there are many things that they have to do in order for them to remain relevant, in order for them to stand in a chance of doing as well as they did this time or even better next time. Uh, the challenges are huge. And as I said, I don't think President Museven and his group and army and security forces are going to spare any effort to destroy them. Uh, but I, don't, I think that given what we saw during the campaigns, because very few people gave Bobby Wayne any chance of running a successful campaign from beginning to, end, to the end, but he did. Uh, very few people thought that that group had the stamina to remain on the road, even in the midst of harassment and shootings and arrests and abductions, but they stayed the course. So I think that that's a demonstration that they have a great deal of potential to continue giving the ruling party a hard time, but we will see. I think that uh, between now and the next elections, there's still a lot of time. There's a lot to play for. Um, I hope that they are not going to go down the road of trying to disrupt things and engage in acts of violence. Because as I told you, President Museveni's greatest asset is stability and peace. Now, any group that disrupts that then really puts itself on the road on a slippery slope to self-destruction. I hope they're not going to go that way. But Fred, I think what you're describing is a dilemma that often happens in emerging democracies um, where kind of, a, a, for lack of a better word, a, a, a semi-authoritarian or soft authoritarian runs up against a, an opposition that gains in popularity, which is that, you know, Museveni himself, I think he's in his mid seventies, I, I believe, you know, Officially. Officially, right. Um, he's afraid to leave office because if he leaves office and the other side wins, then he could be prosecuted. He could be, you know, he and his followers could be or his close allies could be persecuted. His allies also don't want him to leave office. You know, he's or, or they want to have someone from the NRM be able to contest. But the more they do things to poke the eye of the opposition, the more popular they grow. So I guess my real question is, what's the off ramp for Museveni? Um, you know, James, I would like to correct something. I don't think that President Museveni wants to be in power because he's afraid of being prosecuted if he left power. I think President Museveni wants to be in power because he wants to be in power. Um, I have seen reference to a statement that he's allegedly made to a German friend of his who asked him why he keeps going. And he said he's addicted. And, uh, <laughs> At least he's on. At least he's being honest. <laughs> <laughs> That wouldn't surprise me at all. But I also think that uh, there is something about President Museveni that some people don't notice or they don't take into account. He has a serious messianic view of himself. He thinks that without him, Uganda will somehow get into trouble. He thinks that there is no one good enough to lead the country as he is. And he has actually been quite emphatic in recent times that he's not going to leave power until he has identified a good enough and capable and serious person to take over from him. So he postures as this single individual in the whole country of more, almost 40 million people 
as the only person who has the capacity to run the country. And I think that it's that rather than his fear of what may happen if he leaves power. It's just he, he feels he's doing Ugandans a favor. And he has said it many times that, you know, he's helping Ugandans. <laughs> he could retire if he wanted to, but he's there to help Ugandans to develop or whatever it is. It's just a man with an oversized ego who thinks that he's the best thing that has happened to Uganda since sliced bread. So I'm not sure that it's fear of what might happen if he leaves. What is his off-ramp? Well, um, increasing numbers of Ugandans think that he's there for life, or at least he's going to hang on until he dies in office. And uh, there is every chance that he could do that successfully, as I said, as long as he keeps the loyalty of the armed forces and he's able to manipulate them into doing his bidding and uh, winning, uh, making it uh, impossible for opposition groups to campaign effectively and therefore to stand any chance of uh, winning power. So um, unless he gets, the, uh, he, he, he falls ill and becomes incapacitated, in which case then he involuntarily leaves. But as long as he's able to stay on, I think he's likely to stay on and possibly die in office. But as I, uh, as I tell some people sometimes, I was once in the habit of trying to predict what President Museveni was going to do. I gave that up a long time ago. I no longer try to predict what he's going to do tomorrow or next year. Yeah, I think uh, political scientists in the last, you know, dec decade, at least to particularly Americanist political scientists in the last few years have, have taken, it's, it's been good for them to become or have more humility at their predictions about what may happen in political life. I think, I think that goes for all of us for sure. Um, Fred, I wanted to end with a big picture question, which is, um, what do you think this election in Uganda this year tells us about democracy in general, globally in the 21st century? And what lessons do you think other countries should take from Uganda, if any? Uh, James, I'm reluctant to make big statements about democracy in the world, but I'll, <laughs> I'll, I will venture. You're a guest on our podcast, though, so you can pretend. <laughs> I, I am too, venture. by the way. I am too, by the way. That's why I ask you, so I don't have to answer it myself. <laughs> yeah, but I, I will venture an opinion as far as democracy in Africa is concerned. Uh, it's my considered view that uh, competitive multi-party uh, politics in Africa is actually not good for us. Uh, I think it distracts us from doing so many things we could do for and in our countries. I think it's wasteful of resources. Our governments spend a lot of money on campaigns, on buying opposition, uh, opposition, on doing all kinds of things. Now, for countries that subsist on aid to a very large extent, I shudder at the thought that the government of Uganda, for instance, could be rumored to have spent $25 million on getting President Museveni re-elected. Now, not only is competitive adversarial multi-party politics bad in that sense, but it's also wasteful of talent. Uh, President Museveni's government is full of people who are, in the opinion of many Ugandans, fairly incompetent and not really up to the jobs that they've been appointed to. We have a lot of good, skilled, competent people in the opposition who are languishing, they are doing nothing, who could be making a great contribution to building the country. So my preference would be for us to find a way of competing uh, in ways that maximize our use, our um, that, that maximize our positive use of money 
but also talent. We don't have a lot of uh, talented people around. So if you have say 100, 200 very skilled, talented people in opposition parties, which, will, which have no chance in hell of coming to power in 30 years, wouldn't it be such a good thing to include these people in government so that they make a contribution? Uh, if you have a government that goes around cup in hand begging for aid, how can you justify spending $25 million on a rigged election? So I think that we need to find ways of managing our politics in such a way that we can compete, but not compete in ways that end up being destructive. And here in Rwanda, where I live, I think we have the best example of a system that I think works very well for the country in that we have 11 political parties. They are all in parliament. Nine of them are represented in government. We have um, a proportional representation system here. We have a broad agreement among political groups that uh, political competition has to be managed in a particular way. I have never seen in Rwanda violent uh, campaigns. I have never seen the army or the police interfere in politics here. I have never seen angry campaigns where the president goes around insulting and threatening his opponents and them doing it back at him. And here elections or campaigns in Rwanda are fairly cheap in comparison to what I see in Uganda. In Uganda, when we have a presidential campaign, when we have presidential elections, we live constantly in fear. The government mobilizes the army as if we are going to war. All that is money wasted, all those attentions that we could do without. And when I look at Rwanda and how, how civilized and quiet and sedate their campaigns are, and how cheap their campaigns are, I wonder if this is not what we should be doing in Africa. I think that we Africans need to become a little bit more bold and engage in more experimentation and see what works for us. This cut and paste uh, approach to democratization that we have engaged in all these years, I think is really damaging. But I will not venture to make any big statements about democracy in the world. <laughs> Well, I think that's a very good place to end, very provocative. Uh, you and I could uh, obviously talk about Uganda for a long time, but we could also talk about Rwanda as well. So I, I'll leave it at that with a very interesting and provocative close. But Fred Galuba Mutebe, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Thank you, James. Thank you for having me on the podcast. Thank you for listening to the Neither Free Nor Fair podcast. Please feel free to listen to our other episodes on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. You might also like the UW Political Economy Forums podcast, which is also available on iTunes and all other podcasting platforms. Our podcasts are produced by Morgan Wack and myself, Nicholas Vichdok. Our theme music was created by Ted Long. Please feel free to leave a review as we're curious about your feedback. And if you have any questions, suggestions, or concerns, please contact UW Economy at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you.